0: Welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. On today's episode, we will examine the 70s rock opera, which very much seemed to be a product of its era. But before we do that, thank you so much for hitting play. As always, I appreciate your reviews. Your financial support, and most of all, that you are choosing to spend some time with me and listen to the show. You can always send me a message, check out my sources, and click on the Patreon donation link at FTR70.com. Here's a shout out to Damo in Melbourne, Australia, who dropped me a line. I have had a few Australian fans reach out and send messages, which is very cool. So thanks to everyone including Damo in Melbourne. Uh, The last time I checked, this show had listeners in over 30 countries, which is pretty amazing. If you like the show, and I trust that many of you do, a five-star review on your podcast app will help other like-minded people find the show. You can also become a patron for as little as $1 per month and for as much as, well, as much as you care to contribute. Simply go to FTR70.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page, and that will take you to Patreon. That helps me pay the bills without the annoyance of ads for food delivery services and toothbrushes and underwear and stuff like that. The legendary rock critic Lester Bangs, immortalized in film by Philip Seymour Hoffman in the 2000 movie Almost Famous. How is that possible that it was that long ago? At any rate... uh, Lester Bangs wrote as the 70s began that rock music is, and I quote, basically an adolescent music reflecting the rhythms, concerns, and aspirations of a very specialized age group. It can't grow up. When it does, it turns into something else, which may be just as valid, but is still very different from the original. He wrote that in 1970, as part of a sort of review of the Stooges album Funhouse. By the end of the 70s, you can, And I have make the case that rock music had become the establishment that anti-establishment rockers wrote and sang about. But some of the best that rock music has to offer us is the introspection of youth in the present or a reflection on youth of the past. If you couple this with the 70s, an era of self-reflection, which the author Tom Wolfe would later simply just label as narcissism. And I've talked about that wolf essay in a prior podcast episode. Doesn't, with that in mind, then, doesn't the rock opera just seem like the perfect vehicle for presenting a dramatic interpretation of if not your life, then someone's life? I mean, consider what an opera is. It is dramatic theater. It is big. It is bold. It's the telling of a story with a combination of theater and music. Often, there is some sex and some violence sprinkled in. Yes, traditionally, that is done with classical music. But why can't these stories be told with rock music? They can. And an examination of some of the classic rock operas shows that they are, in fact, examining the trials and tribulations of youth. Now, that's not the same as a musical. The Los Angeles Rock Opera Company says on their website... We are often asked what is the difference between rock opera and rock musical theater. In essence, a rock opera, like traditional opera, is a story that isn't told entirely through singing, while musical theater usually has spoken dialogue as well as songs. So where have the rock operas gone? To some degree, they have faded with rock's fade. The whole notion of a band seems almost obsolete. Young musicians do not need a band. They only need a laptop. Arguably, they possess the technology to create a rock opera, but the consumers of music in the 21st century seem to prefer playlists. Yes, I remember those of a different type. I used to make them with cassette tapes, but I was limited to the music I had in my possession, or if I wasn't too obsessed with the quality of each single, I would wait for my favorite song to come on the radio and then I would hit those record buttons on my tape tape recorder at just the right moment all while, you know, you're hoping that the DJ would just shut up and not talk over your song. I suspect that some of you have a similar recollection. If you subscribe to a streaming service, you have access to just about any song that you can think of, and a whole lot that you didn't even know existed. Polls and surveys indicate that the vast majority of music bands prefer to listen to their own curated playlists or just hop from single to single. They do not take in a whole album and certainly do not listen from start to finish, as is pretty much a requirement if you're going to listen to and absorb a rock opera. Now, I have read in various places and in various ways, that music fans under, say, 40 don't have the patience for an album, let alone for a rock opera. I don't believe that. I don't think that that's true. I do think that the way music is distributed does matter. So if you are a fan of a certain artist and they prefer to release singles or something like that, then that's what you're going to listen to. But consider something like Beyonce's Lemonade, which is neither rock nor opera, but it's a concept album that deals with her feelings about Jay-Z's infidelity, and it's one that's highly regarded by fans and critics alike. The audience is there, but I just don't think that artists take advantage of it. Like so many things in the 70s, the rock opera was born in the 60s, and it's part of this desire for the genre of rock music to be taken seriously as an art form. Really, it was incredibly ballsy of The Who to think that they could produce something on the scale of Wagner and that their fans would buy it, but it worked. Like any opera, a rock opera requires plot and characters. The term rock opera may have come from Kit Lambert, producer for The Who, who was kind of joking around when he used the term to describe these elaborate musical productions that Pete Townsend wanted to create. And it is Townsend who is credited with the first rock opera, A Quick One While He's Away. It's a 10-minute song containing six movements that was recorded for The Who's second album called A Quick One in 1966. However, Ryan Fertell begs to differ, and he offers a different candidate for the first. He is a historian and author of one of those short books in the wonderful 33 and a Third series. This one is about the drive-by truckers southern rock opera from 2001. If you like deep dives into records, you really must check out the catalog of offerings from the University of Texas at Austin, I believe it is, and the 33 in a Third Series. He makes a very compelling case for uh, A Man Dies, which he describes as an early 1960s attempt to stage the New Testament for the boomer generation of rock and roll mad teenagers. It takes on several of the societal problems that make for good drama, even if we are not actively working to fix any of those problems, such as racism and poverty. Three years later, in May 1969, The Who released the double album that was two years in the making called Tommy, about Tommy Walker. This is how Rolling Stone summarized the plot in its 1969 review. The central character is Tommy himself. Born during the First World War, He becomes blind, deaf, and dumb after seeing a murder by his parents in a mirror, becomes a pinball champion, reaches a state of grace, regains his senses and starts his own religion, is eventually discarded by his disciples somewhere in the far distant future, finds himself as isolated as he was in the beginning. The opera is, apart from being some of the best rock yet, a statement of Townsend's philosophy. It's about life, he says. Well, this is what Roger Daltrey said about it decades later,
1: and it, it came out at a time, particularly in America, where the youth of America were were, were really being, you know, hammered by the Vietnam War, war um, and conscription being sent off to Vietnam. So I I, I think it. it you know, it it, it it was a kind of spiritual awakening in some way. And um, it captured pe- people's imagination and off it went. There's something about the, mu- the music that, uh, that touches people deeply. Um, I think everybody has their see-me-feel-me moments. I, th- I think everyone has their uh tommy moments where they are they feel that they're deaf dumb and blind i know when i look back on my teenage years it's almost like that's how i was
0: (laughs) i think that speaks to one of the things that we look for in music which is something in the in the lyrics that makes us feel as if we are not alone in however we might be feeling especially if we are feeling sad or confused or something like that consider now that tommy is not just about one song but it's about the character And then consider now the potential of connecting not just with the song, but connecting with the character of Tommy. Now, writing a song about a pinball champion could have gone horribly wrong, especially if this song is supposed to be serious. You run the risk of unintentionally writing a novelty song rather than a rock song. But Pete Townsend was willing to risk that because he was trying to gain the favor of a very well-known and influential British rock critic, Nick Cohn, who also happened to love pinball. Pinball was very much a part of 70s pop culture in the United States, too. And those machines in the 80s were right alongside Pac-Man in many arcades. But they were actually illegal in some cities in the 70s. It was considered gambling, and the Chicago Mafia produced a lot of the machines. So it was not until 1974 that the California Supreme Court ruled that pinball is a game of skill, not chance. And then New York City loosened up its ban a couple of years later. Let's check the lyrics to Pinball Wizard. You know, I knew some people like this and was in awe of watching them play pinball. A little alert here, uh, certainly... The phrase deaf, dumb, and blind is not a term or a phrase that we would use today to describe somebody who couldn't hear and couldn't speak and couldn't see. So understood that, that would that is something that uh, we would consider offensive today. Nonetheless, the lyrics, he stands like a statue, becomes part of the machine, feeling all the bumpers, always playing clean. He plays by intuition, the digit counters fall, that deaf, dumb, blind kid sure plays a mean pinball. Yeah, I knew people like that, who played like that, where they seemed like they were, they were part of the machine. In 1975, Robert Stigwood produced the movie version of Tommy, which featured a rather star-studded cast. Uh, let's see, who was in that? Tina Turner, Anne Margaret, Jack Nicholson, and Elton John? Elton reportedly agreed to play the pinball wizard and cover the song, if he could keep the enormous boots that made him about 10 feet tall. In the movie, Elton's instrument is a pinball machine with a keyboard. He wears his Elton-esque sparkly glasses, a sparkly beanie with a pinball on top, and, of course, the boots. And it's all just so perfectly 1975. Pinball Wizard is, I think, the most pop-sounding of the songs in Tommy, yet its inspiration comes from the 1680 piece, Fantasia Upon One Note, by Henry Purcell. I said 1680. That one note is a middle C, which is maintained throughout the piece by the violin or whichever instrument is playing it, and the other instruments kind of swirl around it. Why? Well, the speculation is that Purcell maybe had a friend who could not really play, So he created a piece in which the friend just needed to maintain the middle C and still participate in playing the song. Pete Townsend said, I found that a stunning thing to call upon while I was in the process of writing Pinball Wizard. I analyzed every single chord in the piece and found ways to play them on the guitar. So, from this... So from this comes this. Elton John's cover of Pinball Wizard was released as a promotional single and therefore not eligible for any Billboard rankings. Still, it was a radio staple, still is, in regular rotation on classic rock stations. So, was the British rock critic impressed? Yes, he was. And he helped Tommy get the attention that it needed, even though Townsend himself was not sure, and actually initially considered pinball wizard to be kind of a clumsy attempt at songwriting. And oh, by the way, a couple of years after Tommy, the producer Robert Stigwood rolled out another iconic movie and music project, Saturday Night Fever. The Who was not done with rock operas, though. Written entirely by Pete Townsend, Quadrophenia is about a young British mod named Jimmy. The mods, short for moderns, were this segment of British youth who had a bit more disposable income than their parents and used it to buy fashionable clothes, Italian scooters, and American blues and jazz records. Oh, and some drugs and alcohol, too. Quadrophenia's main character, Jimmy Cooper, has a rather boring job, or at least he thought so, as a postal worker, and he quit to become one of the mods. Jimmy also has four personalities each one representing a member of The Who. Sean Murphy wrote this in 2011 for the Pop Matters website. Quadrophenia is an album that has something for everyone and everything for some people. It concerns itself with virtually all the themes that have defined rock music through successive generations. Alienation, rebellion, redemption, sex, drugs, rock and roll, as well as mods, rockers, punks, godfathers, bellboys, drunk mothers, distant fathers, and fallen heroes, the sea, sand, surf, and suicide, rain, uppers, downers, and drowning, zoot suits, scooters, school, and schizophrenia, dirty jobs, helpless dancers, pills, and gin, stars falling, heat rising, and above all, love, love of music, love of life, and love of possibility, faith, in the attempt to make a cohesive, not to mention coherent, statement on the meaning of all these things, and more. A syndicated review from the Chicago Sun-Times in the fall of 1973 compared Quadrophenia to Ulysses by James Joyce, Beethoven's Symphony No. 9, and goethe's Faust, in that they stand alone in their genre. This uncredited critic in the Chicago Sun-Times said that quadrophenia is, and I quote, pure, uncorrupted rock and roll standing by itself in isolated splendor. In the album's final song, Love, Rain, or Me, Jimmy has stolen a boat and lands on a rock. If you only know the song from the single version, you missed out on the sound of the rain coming down on Jimmy, who ultimately just wants to be loved. This is the opening to Love, Rain Over Me on the Quadrophenia album. ¶¶ is so nice. You don't get that gong crash on the single version either. Townsend said that he envisioned the song sung as more like a whimper. This is from Song Facts. He envisioned the vocal as a whimper because the character in the song is having the most awful day of his life when Daltrey, Roger Daltrey, let loose. It was an interpretation that shocked him and he reflexively dismissed it. Engineer Ron Nevison convinced him to give it a chance. Now, I say when Roger Daltrey sings in the beginning of the song, he takes this calm and measured approach, but then the emotion, it builds, and Keith Moon's drumming just seems to be pushing Daltrey along, and then this is what happens—
2: That makes you
0: It's cathartic and it's big and it's bold, but it's also tender at the same time. Maybe that's the who's best too. I'm not, I'm not sure. It's, it's fabulous. I know that. It's also not a hit by Billboard Hot 100 standards, but it's definitely secure in its place in the canon of classic rock. So 1973 is the same year that critics said that Paul McCartney was all washed up because there may have been nothing more difficult for Paul McCartney than competing with Paul McCartney. His new band, Wings, was accused of creating nothing more than silly love songs as they were getting ready to record McCartney's fifth album since the breakup of his other band. Now, I will admit that Band on the Run, the album, does not meet the criteria for a rock opera, but you can make the case that the title track does. It is a song in three parts about escape, which also isn't exactly about youth, but I suspect that more than a few of the boomers who were moving into adulthood and all that this implies could relate to the desire to break out of a jail of some type. This is what McCartney said about this in an interview for a BBC documentary almost 40 years later.
1: I think around about that time, there was a sort of spirit amongst the young people of like, Getting Away, Vigilantes, yeah. Desperados. Yeah. <laughs> there were records coming out a bit like that. And I think that was me doing a nod to that kind of thing. I, it was a nice idea, to sort of breaking out, you know, and we were stuck inside somewhere, these four walls, and then the song could break out, and then it could get more sort of um, fantasy into it.
0: The recording of Band on the Run at the EMI Studios in Nigeria was a... Mess. Uh, In terms of it it was one misadventure after another, Uh, it started with two band members quitting Wings before they even left for Nigeria, Paul and Linda, Linda McCartney, his wife. They were robbed uh, by somebody with a knife and they were told later that they were lucky that they were not killed. I'm not sure what Paul thought he was going to find in Nigeria. Uh, I don't know why he would ignore the advice he was given and go out at night and make himself and make Linda a target for this robbery. What the robbers got, among other things, were the original band-on-the-run demo tapes. Wouldn't you love to know if anything happened to those or if they were just tossed in the trash can or what? But so much for taking his band somewhere where he thought they could kind of act like tourists by day, maybe lounge on the beach, and then go out and, and record at night. You add in that the quality of the equipment that was available to McCartney was not what he was used to, and none of this was a recipe for success except for that ingredient known as Paul McCartney and Tony Visconti, who McCartney hired to both write for and conduct a 60-piece orchestra. Band on the Run was released as the follow-up single to Jet in April 1974. It's a story about breaking free from prison, The song does not have the same intricate plot as Tommy or other rock operas, but it does kind of have a a vague story about a persecuted band. The first of three parts of the song begins very slowly. Stuck inside these four walls, sent inside forever, never seeing no one nice again like you. So this part is it's kind of slow and languid. And then the song transitions into a bit of a more kind of a funk rock statement about what our narrator will do if his band ever breaks free. so it's distinctly different from the first part right it's kind of kind of funky a little bit rock and then comes the third part and then the orchestra comes crashing in and the band is free rock opera, right? Three parts, telling a story. Look, if a song can evoke the feeling of breaking free from a prison, this one does it. Band on the Run was not going to be released as a single because there were not going to be any singles. But it was released as a single in the U.S. in April 1974 and promptly went to number one on the Billboard charts. The version you probably heard on the radio was a little bit different. It was shorter. In 1975, "Band on the Run" earned McCartney and Wings a Grammy for Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group. Evidence of 1974's awesomeness in music is that Olivia Newton-John won a Grammy for Female Pop Performance for "Honest," I Honestly Love You, and Stevie Wonder won for the album "Fulfillingness's First Finale." But I digress. Let's try to imagine what record executives were thinking when they were first presented with Paradise by the Dashboard Light. They had to be thinking, what is this? Is this a rock song? Is it a duet? What is it? That Out of Hell is Meatloaf's debut album. It is a rock opera based on Neverland, which is a musical based on Peter Pan. It is seven songs oozing with teenage angst. The songs were written by Jim Steinman, who was heavily influenced by Wagner, but he also loved rock and roll. So as a kid, he would listen to some opera, and then he would follow that up as one does with uh, some Little Richard or Jerry Lee Lewis. Meatloaf, he was a Rolling Stones guy. The producer was Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Todd Rundgren, who ended up agreeing to paying for the recording of Bad Out of Hell himself. Because originally he thought that Meatloaf had a record deal with RCA, but he didn't. So Rundgren's like, well, this needs to be made, so I'll pay for it. CBS Records, which was run by the legendary Clive Davis, uh, said via Clive Davis that no way are we making this. In fact, uh, Clive Davis told Jim Steinman, clearly you have no idea how to Write a Rock Song. Dave Marsh wrote this in his Rolling Stone review of Bat Out of Hell. Meatloaf has an outstanding voice, but his phrasing is way too stage-struck. He needs a little less West Side Story and a little more Bruce Springsteen. Paradise by the Dashboard Light is every bit a theatrical performance, and it's as much drama as it is rock. The bassist, Kasim Sultan, who played on Bat Outta Hell, said... Meat got to act in that song, and he loved acting. He did that with every song, but especially in Paradise, because it was indelibly linked to his whole life. He loved performing that song more than I could possibly tell you. And Meatloaf was an actor. He was the understudy to John Belushi on the National National Lampoon Roadshow, and he met Steinman in the early 70s when he auditioned for Steinman's 1973 musical, More Than You Deserve. The theme of Paradise by the Dashboard Light is teenage lust. It's about a teenage boy trying to convince, we presume, a teenage girl to have sex with him in the front seat of a car. Ellen Foley, the female singer who duets with Meatloaf in this song, was also on that National Lampoon tour, and she said that many of the songs that became Bat Out of Hell were born on that tour. She also said of Steinman, and I quote, I don't want to be a shrink, but I think it was probably him working out his own teenage desires that he hadn't done in real life but was able to experience in this hyper-emotional material. He just wanted to create something that nobody had ever heard before. Now Foley sang her parts with Meatloaf in the room. She asked for that so that she could sing directly to him. We were both in character. He was that poor, frightened horny guy. Now, Paradise by the Dashboard Light begins with a bit of a narrative. I remember every little thing as if it happened only yesterday. Parking by the lake, and there was not another car in sight, and I never had a girl looking any better than you did, and all the kids at school, they were wishing they were me that night. (laughs) So then we get to the part where he has just about successfully convinced her to do the deed. And then we get Yankee legend, shortstop turned play-by-play announcer, Phil Rizzuto, who gives us, well, the play-by-play. And then, because this is a dramatic performance, Ellen Foley breaks in and she wants to know if he will always love her. And he says, let me sleep on it.
2: Love me forever, do you need me? Will you never leave me? Will you make me so happy for the rest of my life? Will you take me away? Will you make me away? Do you love me?
0: Her answer, after he says, let me sleep on it, she says yes. She agrees to go all the way tonight and he agrees to love her forever and then comes again because this is a dramatic performance and this is a rock opera. Here comes the regret. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a rock opera, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, released in 1978, several months after the Bat Out of Hell album was released. It snuck into the top 40 at number 39, which on one hand is kind of surprising that it was only 39, but on the other hand is not surprising at all, because this is the disco era of radio. That does not at all negate the success or the legacy of the single and the album, Which at last check had sold something like 34 million copies and is one of the best selling rock albums of all time. Steinman said that Meatloaf was afraid of having to follow that up, but they did create Bad Out of Hell 2. It was released in 1993 and it produced the number one single that you've probably heard of I'd Do Anything for Love, but I won't do that. Ed Jones wrote this for The Spectator in March 1977 is about a series of five shows that Pink Floyd did at Wembley Stadium in London on their tour for their Animals record. He was referring to the large inflatable pig that was a staple at the show. The pink pig's belly is a sadly appropriate image. It sums up the porcine grossness of the events, whose essence is the gathering together of large numbers of people for the purpose of mass idiocy and private profit. He wrote of the band, the band themselves cultivate anonymity on stage, apparently happy to act as little more than backing musicians providing mood music for their own gimmicks of presentation. Well, if that sounds a bit harsh, Roger Waters wasn't much happier about the way things had worked out for the band by 1977, which by then you could easily make the case. Uh, Pink Floyd was a legit supergroup. The Wall was born out of the frustration that Roger Waters felt about performing in large stadiums. He started thinking about it in 1977 and proposed it to the rest of Pink Floyd in 1978. Playing to very large audiences, some of whom were our old audience who'd come to see us play, but most of whom were only there for the beer in big stadiums and consequently... It became rather an alienating experience doing the shows, he said. As for the shows for the wall tour in 1980, a huge brick wall was slowly constructed over the course of the first half of the show that was to symbolize the growing isolation that Pink, a burned-out rock star, was feeling. I can clearly recall antagonizing my junior high teachers by singing the lyrics of another brick in the wall. And as I sit here now, a high school teacher, I can get why they were a bit ruffled by that. Waters was writing about a different era, though. He was writing about 1950s grammar school in Britain that he described as more about controlling boys than educating them. It turns out, by the way, that my junior high was not the only school to be oh-so-clever as to sing this song in our hallways. A review of some newspaper articles reveals that some teachers across the United States wanted the song banned from the radio. Some radio stations did put up some resistance to playing it, and the song was in fact banned in South Africa. This is from the Cedar Rapids Iowa Gazette in July 1980, which had published a syndicated article by William Sievert. While the song is not the first example of the anti-education theme in popular music, it comes at a time when increasing numbers of students are questioning the value of their education and are aware of the often drastic cutbacks in youth services. Thus, young people are responding to the song with uncommon and unsettling enthusiasm. I don't know if I was thinking about that uh, when I was singing the song. I don't know that I was thinking about drastic cutbacks in youth services and questioning the value of my education. I thought it was just kind of fun to annoy my teachers by singing a song. Uh, like Another Brick in the Wall. I think that's that was more along my line of thinking there. As a former student and current educator, I kind of had to stop and think, though, about what that song meant then. And I really do get it. I think overall, if you feel like your school is not that interested in you as a person, then it definitely can and likely will add to your feeling of isolation. So lyrics like this are going to resonate. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. No dark sarcasm in the classroom. Teacher, leave those kids alone. No. Another brick in the wall. That's an actual children's chorus there. And no, it's not your imagination that that song just sounds a little bit disco. Uh, Released in November 1979, it went to number one in March 1980 on the Billboard Hot 100 and in the hallways of Fremont Junior High in Nebraska. The rock opera does not need to be a lost art. Neither does rock, for that matter. It's as much up to the artist to provide this form of art. And if they make it, I think there's an audience for it. Yes, it's very 70s in many ways. But it's about telling stories. And that is something that I think never goes out of style. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. Thanks so much for listening. All of my sources are on FTR70.com. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do is tell somebody. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. That's all for now. Bye, everybody.